The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to keep on going in our study on uh, evangelism, so take a seat if you would. Um, We're still on the blue one here, and uh, last week we were talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. Uh, As you remember, the blue one uh, was not paginated, so that makes it a little bit hard, but uh, uh, find the section, if you would, where it talks about the Holy Spirit's work on the evangelized. That's that's where we're starting tonight. Doctrinal uh, uh, instruction, sub-point four, power on the evangelized. We went over this really quickly at the end last time, but I want to dig into it. Can you see it? Power on the evangelized. You see it? Doctrinal instruction. I'm sorry about the pagination. The next one is paginated. That makes it a lot easier. Uh, But uh, can you find it? Everyone nod. Yes? No? Okay. All right. All right, uh, our topic tonight is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in evangelism. We talked last time at length about power on the evangelist, uh, namely what God does in us to get us ready, to prepare us, to enable us to be witnesses for Christ. Uh, I wa- we also talked briefly about the other side of the equation, and I want to begin there tonight. The Holy Spirit is working all the time on people. You know, one of the major foundational ideas of Henry Blackaby's uh, book, uh, experiencing God is that God is at work around you all the time. And if the central work that God is doing in this world to bring glory to his name is the salvation of lost people, then we have to imagine that God's at work saving people all the time. And he is. He's at work preparing the way for the gospel. And and so therefore, it's a marvelous thing to think that when you are sharing the gospel with somebody, when you're sitting down, you're sharing with somebody, that God has gone before you and gotten that person ready. And it's been going on for years. That's an exciting thing. We see evidence of this in many places in the book of Acts. We see evidence in, for example, Acts chapter 8, when Philip goes after the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, God has been at work in the Ethiopian eunuch's life for years I mean, here's an Ethiopian man who's making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, you know, uh, in order that he might find out more about the Jewish faith. Could be he's been doing this for years. We have no idea. And there he is sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. How exciting is that? And not just anywhere in Isaiah the prophet, but the most evangelistic section, Isaiah 53. And so God is orchestrating everything, getting it all together. That's exciting. Uh, So we talked about that. I'm on uh, the page that talks about orchestration. The Holy Spirit shows his sovereignty over daily life by orchestrating witnessing opportunities in amazing ways. One of the things I pray, I pray a three-part prayer every day. Uh, I pray this. Number one, God, um, give me an opportunity today to share my faith. I pray that. Number two, give me the wisdom to see it. (laughs) And number three, give me the power to make the most of it. All right. So I ask for the opportunity, I ask for the wisdom to see it, to notice it, and then the power to make the most of it. I think you should pray that prayer every day and then just see what God God does. It's not up there with the prayer of Jabez, but it might be. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. We're going to write a whole book on that three part prayer. But basically, what are you doing when you're praying a prayer like that? What would be the benefit of praying? Lord, give me an opportunity to witness today. 
and give me the eyes to see it and the power to make the most of it. Well, why would you pray something like that? Okay. Ronnie, how would a three-part prayer like that help you in your daily life? That's right. That's right. Somebody else, how would praying something like that help you as a witness? That's right. More aware because you're saying, God, just give me one. Just give me one good one today. And then you're, you know, you're, you're in a place and somebody uh, that you don't even know starts talking to you uh, and saying, boy, my world feels like it's falling apart right now. And if you hadn't prayed that prayer or whatever, you're not alert. You just, whoo, you missed that one. And it's like later that evening, you go home and say, that was it. That was my chance, Susan. Also, having prayed that prayer would make you more aware of your dependence upon God. Right. And when the opportunity arises mm-hmm. to speak to somebody, you might be less nervous personally because it's not dependent on you. It's dependent on God. God set it up. You're dependent on him. You're relying on him. And there it is. Uh, but I think it makes you more aware. And it depends also on this idea of orchestration, that God is actually going to orchestrate a witnessing opportunity for you today. And, and all you're doing is you're saying, just, you know, get me ready so that I'm ready so that I can witness. But the basic idea is that God is at work around you orchestrating all the time. We talked about also how he prepares the hearer by leading him or her through specific experiences, which till the soil of their hearts. So that goes on. Uh, we said also the spirit's orchestration of events stretches back in time as well. They might have um, a mother, a relative, a father, somebody who's been witnessing to them or talking to them. And they cannot lead that person to Christ. They just can't. That person won't let them. <laughs> okay? It's got to be somebody else. I, you know, I'm in that situation with some loved ones where I just know I'm probably not going to be the one to do it. All right? I can keep praying. I can keep living my life. I have shared and shared and shared. There's just not much more for me to do. And I'm going to keep finding opportunities, but I'm praying different prayers. I'm saying God brings somebody into that person's life who can do it. Somebody uh, who's coming from a different angle and doesn't have the relational uh, baggage or whatever it is, um, but bring somebody else in. You might be the answer to somebody else's prayer where you're coming in and that person's not going to be able to lead that individual to Christ, uh, but you can do it. And so the, the Holy Spirit's been working on their heart for a long, long period of time. Uh, furthermore, the Spirit specifically picks the evangelist and the words the evangelist will use. Everything seems to click into place. It's not an accident, however. It's the Spirit's orchestration. And finally, the Spirit orchestrates the actual witnessing occasion, as we've talked about. Turn the page. Um, the second thing that the Spirit does, number two, is conviction. The Holy Spirit is specifically given to convict the hearer of sin. Jesus said in John 16, 7 through 11, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Unsaved people, therefore, must come to grips with their sinfulness. They must come to grips with their sinfulness. They must see themselves as under a curse from God, as guilty and in danger of the fire of hell. They must understand that without a Savior, they will never survive the intense scrutiny of Judgment Day. Part of the blindness of sin is that sinners never see their sin as serious. They make excuses for it. They laugh it off. They consider it a minor issue. The more they are uh, pressed about it, the more they tend to respond with humor or with anger and defensiveness. But none of those things lead to salvation. No, it's conviction that leads to salvation. 
It's conviction. It's like, it's like the lightning from God, an awareness that comes that I'm a sinner and that I will be condemned if I'm not saved. And without that, they will not be saved. And that is not your work. It can't be your work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict. Now, the Spirit uses your words. The Spirit uses your demeanor. You have to carry yourself with a certain gravity, a certain seriousness as a witness for Christ. It's not a joking matter. There's nothing lighthearted or frivolous about where they're going to spend eternity. So you can carry yourself and should carry yourself in a serious kind of way. But none of that thing is going to bring conviction. It is the work of the Spirit on the heart. John 16 tells us that. The Spirit does that. He convicts the, the world of sin. I believe uh, that this is what Hebrews 11.6 is talking about. This isn't in your notes, but Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11.6 says, now faith is being uh, sure of what we hope for and convicted, uh, I think is a good translation, by what we do not see. The second half in Hebrews 11.6 is the word is uh, reproof for sin. And it is by faith that we are reproved for sin. It's by faith that we take sin seriously. Well, I believe faith is a gift from God. Conviction is a gift from God. It's something the Spirit works. And they must have it or else they will not seek a Savior. They will not be saved. All right. Uh, Furthermore, since repentance for uh, sin is required for salvation, required for salvation, the sinner who is not convicted of personal sin cannot be saved. All right, this is not an optional add-on. This isn't for like advanced witnessing, okay? Uh, this, is, this is part of what we're called to do. We are called to bring them to a sense of conviction about sin. And again, we can't do that ultimate work, but our words, uh, the, the scriptures that we share, that's what does it. And so they need to see that. They must repent. Uh, they must come to realize that sin is more than anything an offense against the eternal and holy God who created them and who holds their lives in his hand. They have to be Godward focused suddenly for the first time in their lives, maybe. They, they are looking to God and they realize, like David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, so that there's a sense of, oh, I, I am going to stand before this holy God and I'm going to give an account for my life. No words on the part of the evangelist can accomplish this, no matter how much we try to warn and persuade the sinner to flee the wrath to come, Matthew 3, 7. Our words will have no effect. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, and he is able to do it. Without his work of conviction, no one would ever be saved. And a good example of this is the Spirit's convicting work seen in Acts 2:31 and on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Peter had spoken pointedly about the Jews' guilt in condemning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to death. He said this in Acts 2:37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do you think that means when they heard this, they were cut to the heart? They were convicted. They realized their guilt. What do you think that felt like? I mean, what a strong word, cut to the heart, it says. What do you think that felt like? Kind of a burning uh, within. Uh, He's basically blaming them for the death of Christ. And they were cut to the heart and said, brothers, what shall we do? Now, notice in the verse, it says in Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. What does that tell you? Doesn't that speak to the human agency of the evangelist? They weren't cut to the heart before they heard this, but it says they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What's the this? It's the gospel. It's it's the, the words of conviction and reproof concerning sin. So therefore, in the gospel outline, I put uh, the basic four-part outline. We'll talk about that as the course continues, but it's God, man, Christ response. In that second section of man, you have to deal with sin. 
And you have to get specific. You have to use the word of God to convict of sin. And I think the best thing to do is use the law of God. We should use the Ten Commandments. We should use the two great commandments. The Ten Commandments and the two great commandments, I think, are sufficient to bring everyone in the world under a sense of conviction for sin. Go through the Ten Commandments. Talk about each one. And then you see the work of conviction working in someone's heart. I, I think when you're doing that kind of work and they come to the point where they say, you know, uh, well, you know, who can be saved? Nobody's perfect. You know you're heading in the right direction. They are already feeling that they do not measure up to the standard that God's given. You know, when you say, basically, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect to go to heaven, they, they at that point, say that nobody's good enough. And that's when, at last, perhaps they're ready to see a savior. They've got to have Jesus. But again, notice uh, Acts 2.37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Yes, go ahead. Well, if you follow the example of the apostles and how they handled the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the answer is no, okay? They frequently paraphrase. They frequently say, as David says, and then they summarize a number of things he says and put it in that way. Now, the apostles have permission that we don't have, okay? They can do some things we're not necessarily free to do. But in, in the Ten Commandments, I memorized a cate- catechism some time ago that basically summarized the Ten Commandments in ten simple sentences. And you know, if you read the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 20 or in Deuteronomy 5, I think it is, they're longer statements, much longer. Uh, But, you know, a summary like this, uh, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do all your work in six days and rest on the seventh. For God uh, made heaven and earth in six days and rest on the seventh. That's enough. You don't have to get into maid servants, men servants, you know, people in your house and all that kind of thing. There's no need for that, even though it is the word of God. I think a summary is sufficient. You know, that's, that's very good. But you don't get any better summary than the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But there's a summary you want. That's a that's great summary right there. That sums up all the law and the prophets. Very good question. All right, let's keep going. Uh, the words they were cut to the heart is exactly what the Spirit does by way of conviction of sin. The evangelist cannot reach the heart, but the Spirit can and does uh, when he is uh, saving someone. Once the hearer is convicted that he or she is a sinner under the judgment of God, the heart cries out for a Savior. Does it always cry out for a Savior? When the, when the sinner feels a burning of conviction in their hearts, are they, are they automatically going to be saved? Okay, yeah. Uh, think about, for example, uh, Felix. And Paul discoursed with Felix on... Uh, go ahead and look at it. It's in Acts 24. This is a very good example here. Acts 24. Paul's on trial for his life. And he's in front of this uh, Roman governor, Felix. And uh, uh, he makes his original presentation and Felix puts him off. Uh, the Roman procurators are good for putting you off, calling you back a week later, that kind of thing. You know, and so you, there you are languishing in prison. I mean, that's your life. Paul is you know, constantly waiting and waiting for these Roman governors to make up their mind what they're going to do with him. Uh, but anyway, uh, verse 24, I'm in Acts 24, 24 and following. It says, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. So what would you call that? Paul speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. What would you call that? 
Yeah, he's evangelizing, okay? That's what we're talking about here. He is evangelizing. But look what he sa- it says. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. All right, well, I have noticed a direct connection between these three and John 16. Turn back in your, in your outline, uh, John 16, 7 through 11. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Do you see that? So the, the three that the Spirit convicts on are sin, righteousness, and judgment. Paul discourses on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Do you see any similarities there? It's almost a one-to-one correspondence, although the first two are inverted. All right? Like, for example, what do you think Paul talked to Felix about when it came to self-control? I mean, that's an interesting thing. Why self-control? What do you think a Roman governor would need to hear about self-control about? What kind of lives do you think the upper crust of the Roman leadership lived? Apart from Christ, of course. Why do you think Felix would need to hear about self-control? Oh, I don't know. He's got Drusilla at least, but I don't know anything about that. But just what do you know about Roman lifestyles? Indulgent, corrupt, immoral, you know, saying yes to the flesh. Any chance that Felix was saying yes to the flesh a lot? We don't know for sure, but we know what Paul chose to discourse about, right? So he's discoursing about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. That's, in my opinion, almost a one-to-one correspondence of what the Holy Spirit comes to convict you about. Well, what happened as Felix listened to this discourse? What was the outcome? Well, it says, as Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Why do you think Felix was afraid? Yeah, he's being convicted. He's feeling like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. This isn't looking good. Judgment to come. We have to give an account for every careless word you've spoken. I mean, how can you survive that? Okay, so he's afraid. Does that mean he came to Christ? Well, look what happened. Uh, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. Okay, hold it. (laughs) We're not going any further. That's enough. He doesn't want to keep going. He cuts it off. He says, that's enough for now. Uh, You may leave. (laughs) When I find it it convenient, I will send for you. So he puts it off. Friends, just because somebody starts to feel convicted or afraid or whatever doesn't mean they're going to come to Christ. And so you can see that. It's not enough. And actually what ends up happening is Felix's own heart gets changed. He does send for Paul again. He sends for him frequently. But by then his motives are different. He doesn't want eternal life. He wants money. He wants bribe money. And so he keeps waiting for Paul to give him a bribe. And uh, Paul never does. And so he leaves him in, in jail for two years. And then he gets switched out and Festus comes along. So the, so much for Felix. We have no record of Felix ever coming to Christ. But we do have record of Felix getting afraid when he heard about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And so all I'm saying is that that's not enough. But the Spirit does work that. Yes. Put it off. That's right. That's right. So putting it off, um, you know, feeling fear and then, yeah, in. Yeah. And they went to kill him. That's a very good example. You know, uh, basically, Stephen's a great example. Uh, it's one of the most incredible, brilliant sermons ever. 
It's a sermon uh, that's based on redemptive history. It, it, it seems to swirl around with no real point. Oh, but it has a point. The point is uh, that the Jews always persecuted the ones that God sent to deliver them from their sin. That's the, the theme of Stephen's message. And it's not until he gets to the punchline of his message, the application part of the sermon, that they realized what he was about. You know, oh, foolish, stiff-necked people, you know, with uncircumcised hearts and minds, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your forefathers did not persecute? Now you've murdered the Christ. You know, and so they, they, oh, finally they get it. Just like they resisted Joseph, just like they resisted Moses, so they resist Christ and they're doing the same thing. And they're about to prove it again because they're about to kill Stephen. So yeah, you can feel the cut to the quick and yet uh, lash out and blame, shoot the messenger. You know, and you have to be willing to pay that price. If you're going to be involved in evangelism, please don't expect that never will they do that to you. Actually, Jesus does everything he can to get you ready for that. You know, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness or blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. How many different ways does he get you ready for that negative reaction? The shoot the messenger reaction. It's going to happen. And so, yes, there's all kinds of things. But friends, we can't avoid the topic of sin. If you avoid the topic of sin, you are not preaching the gospel. You're not sharing the true gospel. All right. Well, there's another example more positively. We've spoken of all these negative cases. But uh, how about the Philippian jailer? All right. Uh, in Acts 16, uh, 19, uh, 29 and 30, it says, The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's afraid. Uh, he's trembling. Probably he's got some adrenaline in his bloodstream because he was about to kill himself. I mean, that's quite a moment to be hanging over eternity like he was. And he's trembling and he brings them out. But my feeling is he probably knew their message. He'd seen their lifestyle. He knew that uh, they were singing in a Philippian jail after being beaten for the gospel. And he knew that they were at a different level than he was. He needed to be saved. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love to get somebody that you're sharing the gospel to the point where they're trembling and saying, what must I do to be saved? You know that you're very close to the end of your evangelistic encounter at that point. <laughs> they're about to become a brother or sister in Christ. So such a person is ready to turn away from sin and toward a savior. And this is the spirit's next work. It is the work of illumination. The work of illumination. The heart is crying out against itself because of sin. It deeply yearns for a savior. But who can save? And how can I be saved? The scriptures make it clear that only faith in Christ saves souls. And that saving faith only comes by hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10:17. But clearly this is not simply a hearing with the ear. But rather a deep reception of the word into the heart. Many hear the word of Christ without ever truly hearing. This does not save them. Just to have the gospel words vibrate your eardrum is not enough to, to save your soul. Many people hear, but uh, that doesn't save them. What is the difference? Well, the difference is an internal illumination by the power of the Spirit. Now, when we talk about illumination, you should think of what? Immediately. Light, right? So there's a, a, an enlightening that happens by the Spirit. It's the light of understanding. It's like the light goes on inside. It's an internal illumination. <clears throat> Paul speaks in terms of a veil over their hearts, which is removed by the Spirit whenever anyone turns to the Lord. He also speaks of giving sight to the blind. Uh, listen to 2 Corinthians 4. It says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers 
so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And here it is, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is the number one illumination verse in the entire Bible. Look at it again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What does that remind you of? Creation. Genesis 1, 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The same God who spoke into emptiness, who spoke into darkness, and behold, there was something. There was light. That same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Do you see the analogy? Before he speaks, there is nothing. There is darkness. When he speaks, there is light. He says, let there be light. I don't know how you can look at this verse and not conclude that God is sovereign in salvation. I don't know how you can think it's a human work. I don't know how you can think it's just a matter of free will where somebody just turns and decides to have God's light shine in their heart. It doesn't work that way. God says, let there be light into the human heart. Before he spoke those words, there was not light. And you say, what kind of light are we talking about? Well, Paul tells us. It's a specific kind of light he has in mind. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light, so it's his light, shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's Christ's light. It's the light of Jesus Christ in your heart, shining there. It wasn't there a moment before. You might have heard of Jesus. You might have known the facts of the gospel. You might have known lots of things about Jesus, but his light wasn't shining in your heart. But once God says, let there be light, then the light of Christ shines in your heart. And uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. Amen? I mean, once that light shines, it will never go out. Never. Satan cannot put it out. Nothing can put it out. So there's the security of the believer. So we see the sovereignty of God. That is illumination. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's something he does in the evangelized. Now, what does it mean that God made his light shine in our hearts? This is the true illumination of the spirit when the person hears the word of Christ. What is the outcome of this illuminating action? What is the outcome of this illuminating action? Well, by it, the spirit gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In other words, God makes, sorry, the spirit makes Christ appear glorious. The spirit makes Christ appear glorious. The spirit makes Christ appear desirable appear to be what he is, God in the flesh. Before that illumination, Christ was none of those things to the hearer. But all of a sudden, he's become magnificent. He's become beautiful. He's become God in the flesh. He's become my savior. How did that happen? Well, it's the Spirit's work. It's illumination. That's what's happening. And so the the Holy Spirit makes the truth of the gospel come alive with compelling force so that he is rightly called the Spirit of truth who is sent to guide us into all truth. Having seen with the heart their own sinfulness, they now see the sufficiency of Christ's blood shed on the cross as an atonement for God, before God. So Christ's blood is enough. It's enough for me. It's enough for me. I know that his blood is sufficient for me. That's by the work of the Spirit, illumination. They also now see the righteousness of Christ as sufficient to cover them on judgment day. The righteousness of Christ is enough. As a result of this heart work, a new believer is about to be born. Isn't that exciting? 
Now you say about to be, that sounds like they're already born again. Friends, you can't really cut these things very fine. To go the difference between illumination and regeneration, they just one immediately follows the other. But the light of God shines and from that he creates a new being. There's a new person created. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means that uh, we are recreated in Christ. This is regeneration. Now, the word regeneration implies a new creation akin to the creation of the universe out of nothing by the mere word of God. Do you believe that God did that? Ex nihilo, that's out of nothing. He created a universe. I believe that. I think, frankly, if you can accept that, all the other miracles of the Bible are easy. I don't understand why people stumble over the virgin birth or the resurrection and all that if they accept creation. I mean, God created everything, heaven and earth, just by the word of his power. Can he not do these other things? Can't he create an ear for Malchus that, uh, after Peter sliced it off? I mean, hey, I'll believe the universe, but I'm not believing a, an ear. No, that's too much. You know, my, my feeling is God, if he, he can create a universe out of nothing, he can create an ear out of nothing. That's no problem at all. I mean, let's not insult him, please. You know, obviously he knows how to do that. He has great power. Well, what did he create in you? If you're a Christian, you know what he he created? He created a new person. You are a a new man, a new woman in Christ. That new person you are in Christ will never die, can never die. It cannot perish, spoil, or fade. It can't be touched by your sin, not in any way. That person is, is eternal and will survive, go right through the rest of your life right through Judgment Day and right on into eternity. Isn't that marvelous? That new creation person that you are. Now, your flesh, it's going downhill quickly. All right? Well, some people, some haven't reached your peak yet, but uh, afterwards it goes down quickly. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Others not, but you'll find out. At any rate, um, the body of sin and death, there's no hope for it. It's going into the grave. We're going to lose it someday, and I look forward to that. But the internal person, that new person we are in Christ, is eternal. And that's regeneration. Again, do you not see that that alone, that's the work of God alone? How can a person free will themselves into being a new eternal being? We can't do that. That's something only God can do. We are created anew. And so, now God speaks light into the mind, faith and repentance into the heart. The sinner's very nature is transformed. What was confusing becomes clear. What was repulsive becomes beautiful. For example, what? How about a bloody Jewish carpenter on a cross? That's repulsive. It is. It's disgusting. But not to me. To me, it's beautiful. To me, it's the beauty of God's righteousness. It's the beauty of God's love. It's the beauty of his power. All in one place, it's a beautiful thing, even though to the eye, it seems repulsive. So what was repulsive is now beautiful. How did that change happen? Well, God worked it. What was terrifying becomes saving. And what could only be perceived by faith is now as real as the physical world. The sinner is now born again by the Holy Spirit, begins to cry, Abba, Father. This is reflected in calling on the name of the Lord, perhaps through an audible prayer. John 3, 5 through 8, Jesus said, Unless you are, uh, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We cannot make ourselves new. Do you believe that? Can, can, can the sinner do that? Have that kind of power? I don't think so. This is a creation work. This is something only God can do. We cannot love God where we ignored him before. We cannot yearn for holiness where we hated it before. We cannot hate sin where we loved it before. But the Spirit can do all of this inside us, and he does it when he is saving a sinner. It is at this moment 
and this is exciting, it is at this moment that the triune God comes and takes residence in the soul of a human being. Father, Son, and Spirit living within us. That's incredible. Doesn't it say, do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? The Spirit lives in you. So the Holy Spirit take up residence, Father, Son, and Spirit take up residence within this new Christian. And they will be together with that person forever. All right. Uh, Acts 2, 38 and 39. uh, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. John 14, 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, let me tell you something. Those words are easy. You know, any three-year-old or two-year-old that's learning English knows the word in you. Okay? Those are easy words, but what a concept. How is the spirit in me? How is he in you? But that's what it says. As I quoted earlier in Corinthians, we are, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But not just the spirit. Uh, John 14, 23, Jesus said, uh, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Who's the we in that sentence? Well, who's speaking? John 14, 23, Jesus is speaking. So who, who's the we? Right. In this case, just father and father and son. But Jesus already covered the spirit a few verses before that. He's there as well. So I don't know if we even use as well language when you come to the Trinity. Right. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, how can we even know father, son and spirit are one God? There is only one God. And that one God dwells within you. If you're a Christian, that's kind of a sobering thought when it comes to sin, isn't it? I mean, to have the spirit with you always, everything you did today, everything you said, the spirit was there. What an incredible thing that is. I'm speaking more positively. Um, you know, that's a wonderful thing in, in times of trouble and difficulty, in times of sadness and loneliness. The Spirit is with you always. This is a great work that we're talking about here, isn't it? What the Spirit does in the evangelized. An incredible thing that he does. Any questions about that? We've talked about how the Spirit's at work in the evangelist. We've talked about how the Spirit is worked at work in the evangelized. Any questions about that? All right, well, let's go on next. Another thing the Spirit does is he gifts the body of Christ for the evangelistic work. The most powerful entity on earth for the salvation of souls at the human level is the church. And the church has been marvelously put together with great wisdom by God to get this evangelistic work done. It is so important that you think corporately and comprehensively not just like it's you against the world, you against, you know, 10,000 unreached people groups. It's not that way at all. God has marvelously put the body of Christ together and given different gifts of the spirit so that we can get this work done. Isn't that exciting? And we all have a role to play. So the gifts of the spirit are, are a big part of evangelism. The spirit does one other major work to accomplish evangelism. He equips the church intelligently through specific spiritual gifts so that the church is able to meet the challenges of a lost and dying world. Some are gifted as teachers, some as evangelists, some as generous givers, some as encouragers, 
some as administrators, some showing hospitality, some with faith, etc. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Spiritual gifts are not a loophole for average Christians to jump through to avoid their personal responsibility in evangelism. That's not my gift. Not at all. I've said that before. I'll keep saying it if I need to. It's not my gift. Well, it may not be your gift, but it is your responsibility to be an evangelist. I hope you all understand that. That's not what we're talking about. But rather, spiritual gifts show the healthiest and best way the community of faith works together to help save people. When the givers give, when the teachers teach, when the prayers pray, the encouragers encourage, etc., when those with the gift of hospitality use their gift of hospitality, the church has a powerful impact on the world. There's nothing as powerful as a healthy local church with the gifts of the Spirit working and people aggressively looking for opportunities to witness. I think that's a marvelous thing. So that's what I'd like to see happen here in this church. And it is happening. People are being saved. The gifts of the Spirit are being used. We can do better, but that's what's going on here. And that's exciting, isn't it? It's really, really thrilling. All right, my best analogy uh, to this comes from considering two momentous battles in the history of our country. All right? I'm not going to read this. I'll just tell you what I mean. All right? There's the Alamo and there's D-Day. Okay? The Alamo was a pretty negative experience for those that were there. Um, you know, they're, they're in this, this mission in San Antonio, and Santa Ana's army comes. It's during the Mexican-American War, and they are grossly outnumbered. Uh, it really is not looking too good. And basically, the single responsibility of every single living, breathing soul inside the Alamo was what when it came to fighting that battle? I'm not talking about pacifism or any of that right now, but if you were there, what was your job? Survive, survive carry a gun, and shoot it, right? You know, if, if you wanted to survive, that's what you're doing. Suppose you were the cook. Suppose you say, well, that's not my gift. What do you think the commander at the Alamo is going to say to you? <laughs> I don't care what your gift is. I don't care what your job is. You know, you grab a gun and you get up on the wall, right? Now, sadly, I think so often many people look on evangelism that way, that basically we all have one job and one job only, and that's to take a spot on the wall and do such and such. And I I think that that's not what God has done in the church. I think a better analogy would be the the issue of D-Day, okay? If you look at D-Day, what did the allied forces that were massed in England, what were they facing across the English Channel? What was waiting for them there? Huge guns. Who was there? Nazi Germany. How long had they been there? Well, since, since May of 1940. All right? And from May of 1940 to June of 1944, they had been doing what? Sitting on their, on their hands? They were building fortifications. All right? They had, it was called Fortress Europe, and they had, you know... Tens of thousands of, of, of mines and barbed wire and mine fields and entrenched guns and reinforced concrete and machine gun emplacements. And, and it went on the whole coastline going down to the Bay of Biscay or something. I mean, it just the whole area had been covered, but especially the stretch right across from southern England, from Pas-de-Calais down to Normandy. All of it was covered. All right. Suppose you took the Alamo approach where, hey, we're all soldiers. Go. Grab, a, grab a, a, a weapon and go. What's going to happen? What would happen if everybody just grabs and, and gets a dinghy or a rowboat or, you know, <laughs> failure? Why? Because the job's too complex. Yeah, it's too big a job. It's too complex. So what are you going to need to succeed in your invasion of Western Europe? You're going to need everything you've got. 
You're going to need all the thinkers and planners and strategists to do their job. You're going to need those that can fly airplanes to do their job, those that can sail destroyers to do their job. You need uh, certain different kinds of soldiers, some that are able to climb up up rocky cliffs and others that are able to to, uh, drive tanks or use... uh, Bangalore torpedoes or who knows what. You probably need good typists back in England to type all the messages. Uh, You know, people that are good on the radar. Uh, You need all of that and more uh, to win. And there you see the need for intelligent specialization. Now, as you look at the Alamo and the D-Day, which of the two do you think lines up better with God's approach to Satan's empire in the world? D-Day. Why, Jim? Why Why do you say it's more like that? It's a big entrenched empire, right? It's a big entrenched empire. And that empire, Satan's, is more complex and more vicious and more dangerous than Nazi Germany was. And it's not easy to save souls. It's difficult. Hang on a second. I want to make one more point. In my opinion, the best way for a Christian to think is both ways. All right? That I myself today might have an evangelistic responsibility toward a waitress or a waiter, uh, somebody on a bus with me, somebody who's standing waiting for something at an airport uh, or a relative, et cetera. And I have as much responsibility toward that individual as somebody who's at the Alamo does to take a place on the wall. However, as I look at strategically the whole church, I know that the Lord has arranged the church in a wise way. And the best thing I can do year after year after year, hour after hour, the best thing I can do to take back the, the, the empire from Satan is to teach the word of God. That's my gift. Ron, did you have something you want to say? Yeah, I think, too, I think, you know, a good example, if you have something to offer, you have something to give, and you have to serve. So, I may not be strong in all those areas, right. but the gift of, your friend and I here, Jim's gift of help, it's just amazing to watch him just help us kind of help people. He just really does it well. Mm. On the analogy, too, I think, um, I think the D-Day set, I mean, it's because it's a, it's a thinker striking a total unit. Right. The that's true. And if you're going to take an, you're going to attack an entrenched fortification, you have to have a plan. You have to have a wise strategy. All I'm saying is that the secretary or the sonar or radar operator back in England has a big part of the victory because they did their job. The quartermaster corps, let's say, who, be, who was sure that each one of the uh, soldiers had enough to eat, had all the, the artillery, the weapons they needed, whatever they needed. The quartermaster, they had to be sure that they got it and kept getting it even after the beachhead was established. So I guess all I want you to know is just look at the marvelous wisdom and grace of God in setting up the church to do this job. It's a great thing, isn't it? And as we do it, uh, we see it working together. Take, let's take a specific example. Brevard and I were talking today about, um, about evangelistic Bible studies in a neighborhood. You have somebody with the gift of hospitality who will open their home and host the thing. You have somebody with the gift of of evangelism who's going to go out door to door and invite people to come in a very winsome way and get them in. Perhaps somebody with the gift of teaching can go through a couple of studies from the Gospel of John and do a good job explaining the the life of Christ. Somebody with the gift of giving uh, funds the whole thing, whatever money would be needed uh, for refreshments or who knows. You see the whole thing working together to accomplish uh, the end of evangelism. So find your place and and do it. Uh, But realize we have... Uh, a role to play every day in evangelism, all right? Um, let's talk about some practicalities, all right? How do we overcome fear in evangelism? Any of you ever been afraid to evangelize? Any of you ever felt that way? I have. You know, I struggle with that. Well, how do we overcome fear? Let's talk about some practical things. Let's start with 
winning the battle for the mind. Okay? Well, it makes sense because that's where the fear is, right? It's not in your right hand or your left foot. I mean, it's in your mind. So we have to win the battle of the mind. All right? Fear is Satan's great smoke and mirror show to keep you from winning the lost. He has duped us into silence by his vain threats. The way to conquer is to win the battle for the mind. You own your own thoughts. Sorry, your own thoughts must be brought under the control of the scriptures. Now, what do I mean by smoke and mirrors? Well, Satan is seeking to intimidate the church so that it will not take the field against him. I talked about this at uh, a pro-life uh, talk I gave recently in, in the area of abortion, but it's especially true in the area of evangelism. Satan wants to trick you into thinking that the weapons you possess are not mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, even though the scripture says they are. Uh, Satan wants to convince you that your armor is porous and weak like wet tissue paper when actually it is invincible against the flaming arrows of the evil one. He wants to convince you that you are poorly equipped for the battle. Why does he want to convince you about that? Say again. So that you do nothing. What if you put on your armor and take up the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left and go forth? What's going to happen? Battle. Battle. And what's going to happen in that battle? You're going to win. Uh, now, between you and Satan, who of the two of you knows that better, you or Satan? He does. Why does he know better that the word of God is invincible when wielded by a spirit-filled Christian who's covered with the armor of God? Why does he know better than you do that he will lose that battle? How old are you? All right, some of you older than others. How long have you been at this? How long has Satan been at it? For 2,000 years, he's been losing. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? And by the way, I think that's part of God's plan. He didn't want to just beat Satan for a week. Do you think he could have evangelized the world in a week? I think, I think he could easily, Christ could easily evangelize the world in a week. He wanted to win for 2,000 years. He wanted a 2,000-year victory and more, maybe. Isn't that exciting? I'd like to get beat for 2,000 years. But he's been getting beat and getting beat and getting beat. So all he can do is trick you. All he can do is intimidate you. Keep you quiet, keep you placid, keep you at home, keep you doing nothing. But instead, the word of God tells you in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish fortresses. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's your offensive weaponry. How's that? Or in Ephesians 6, it says, uh, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we can pray in the spirit. That's powerful. All prayer, John Bunyan called it, and the sword of the spirit. Those are your weapons. And your protection, you have the helmet of salvation. You have the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness. And you have the shield of faith. And his flaming arrows will all of them be extinguished. So you just need to believe that those things are true. All right? And then you have to look at your own life. And you say, have I been duped? <laughs> have I been tricked? Have I given in to fear? Has Satan won with his smokes and mirrors? Has he won some days from me? Have I wasted some time? And my feeling is you probably, if you're like me, I'll just speak about myself, you'll say, yeah, I have. I've skipped some things that I should have done through fear. So I think we ought to just own up to that and say, I, Lord, I am sorry. I confess to you and I repent that I have not trusted your word and I have not believed you what you say about my defensive and my offensive weaponry. It is powerful and I've not believed that and I'm sorry. I confess that to you as sin. So we need to overcome fear. Well, how do you do it? Well, reason with yourself through the following scriptures. Martin Lloyd-Jones says one of the number one things in the Christian life is preaching to yourself. 
you should preach to yourself far more than I should. All right, I only get you for 35 minutes, 40 minutes, maybe 50, maybe 55. <laughs> Definitely not an hour. I don't have an hour. No way. Uh, at any rate, uh, I don't have much time. But uh, you should preach to yourself. All right. What should you preach? What should a text be? Well, 1 John 4.18 is a good one. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Fear of evangelism is essentially self-centered, isn't it? What will they think of me? What will happen to me? I feel so inadequate. What if I can't answer? What if they yell at me? What if I lose my job? Notice the kind of first-person singular thing going on there. It's very me-focused, isn't it? Basically, does it matter? (laughs) Does it really matter? You say, well, it sure does matter to me if I lose my job. My goodness, if you lose your job because of evangelism, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. But probably it's not going to happen. These are the kind of lies that Satan talks to us about. We need to be bold and courageous. Satan's key step is to get your eyes off of Christ and onto yourself. This, this cuts you off from the two greatest motivators for evangelism, and that's love for God and love for neighbor. The Bible's remedy is to fill your heart with love, love for God as shown by obedience to his commands, and uh, love for your neighbor as shown by a willingness to suffer for his or her eternal good. To drive out your fear of evangelism, then, focus your mind on God, his purposes for the world, his goals in building Christ's church, his compassion for the lost. Pray that God's love may fill your heart. Then meditate on what your life would be like apart from Christ. Realize that the people you are trying to reach are living every day without forgiveness of sins, without the guidance of the Spirit, without the Scriptures. Perhaps they're having marital troubles, perhaps a substance abuse problem. Fill your mind with the thoughts that one year from now they may stand and testify to God's grace with tears in their eyes and bless the day you came to them with the gospel. Envision it and love them enough to go do it. I think about that often. We go door to door and we're doing some witnessing. I think their world may be falling apart right now because they don't know Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's probably likely that it is. Although they have an outward facade of managing things, they are not doing well. They need Jesus. And it's my job to bring Christ to them. So how can we be afraid? Do you think that the guys that were crossing the channel and landing in Normandy were afraid? Oh, man. I would have been. I mean, especially when the door goes down and the first half of them are all mowed down immediately. You know, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness. And then you're the third wave, fourth wave and all that. Of course, there's fear. Uh, you know, and, and my feeling is don't, you don't minimize it. But the thing is you've got to overcome it. You've got to overcome it. It's worth it. It's a worthy goal. Love for God and love for the lost drives out fear. All right. Secondly, here's another question. Who are you that you should fear mortal man more than you fear God? All right, you're going to fear somebody, fear God, right? I came across this one, Isaiah 50, 12 and 13. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you fear mortal man, the sons of man who are but grass, that you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? (laughs) Isaiah gives a more uh, different, powerful remedy to fear of evangelism. Fear God more, all right? Don't fear what people will do to you. Fear God and keep his commands. 
We're, we are afraid of someone's facial expressions, some of, someone's angry tone or their harsh reaction. Well, we've completely forgotten that we'll have to give an account to God for our lives. And a big part of that account is whether or not we've been faithful in evangelism. How dare we care more about what people think of us than what God thinks of us? God used this same argument with Jeremiah when he gave him this, his difficult message to proclaim. Listen to this, Jeremiah 1.17. Get yourself ready, stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them or I will terrify you before them. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, fear, fear me more. Isn't that what God's saying? Fear me more. All right, I will give you strength. In other words, Jeremiah, you should fear me more than you fear them. Faith alone can uh, help make this argument stick in our hearts. Faith comes from God through the scriptures. And meditate more on judgment day and your need to give an account to him. All right, thirdly, remember, I will be with you. God is going to be with you. All right, Hebrews 13, 5, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And Matthew 28, 20, Jesus said, surely I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. God is with you. Remember what happened with Moses? And Moses did not want to go to Egypt. And he's trying to do everything he can to get out of it. You remember that? And uh, he asked that key question, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Do you remember God's answer? I will be with you. Did God answer his question? Think about it now. You have to, you, have to, you know, I, I was talking to one of my, one of my children about this. Uh, I asked a question and I got a different answer than the question I asked. And I've learned to be very attentive to that, okay? No, 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 you didn't answer my question, okay? And then I find out, oh, okay, the reality is different, <laughs> okay? Kids are so sharp. They're just amazing, all right? But think about this. Did God answer Moses' question? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God's answer, I will be with you. Did he answer his question? No, not at all. Did he answer his need? Yes. Did he answer his question? No. You know why he didn't answer Moses' question? Because it's irrelevant. I'm not trying to be harsh or unkind. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters who I am. That's what matters. So get up and go, <laughs> and I will be with you. I mean, God is the million-pound weight, and we're all like half-gram weights. And you put a couple of half grams on one and three or four half grams in it, it's kind of like this. Whatever side God's on wins. All right? You see what I'm saying? I will be with you. So just go and we will win. You watch and see. And so it is also in evangelism. Don't fear, man. God will be with us. God has promised to walk with us through all the trials and rejection and persecution difficulties. We will not be alone. Number four, what can man do to me? So what can they do to you, Jim? They can kill you. <laughs> it's like, well, but that's kind of big. You know, I have a wife and kids. <laughs> and yet the scripture does say, what can man do to me? Right? And so there is a meditation. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The idea is really in an ultimate sense, there's nothing they can do. What they can do is increase your heavenly reward. They can do that. They can increase your heavenly. How can they increase your heavenly reward? Yeah, martyrs get, you know, some say a better resurrection or whatever, your reward, etc. They can increase your heavenly reward by treating you poorly. Did you hear that? I'll say it again. They can increase your heavenly reward by treating you poorly. So you might be disappointed now if you don't get poor treatment. <laughs> now, be happy if they rejoice and take the gospel. Yes, go ahead.
Yeah, I mean, he made the most of his situation. That's, oh, that's a good point. So, yeah, what can man do to me? They can increase uh, your eternal uh, reward. Let's stop there. We're not going to get through all these things anyway. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening, for the learning that we've done in uh, evangelism. I thank you for your power. I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit going on around us at all times. And Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to be faithful. Help us, O oh Lord, to pray that prayer. Lord, give me a witnessing opportunity today and give me the eyes to see it and the power to make the most of it. Uh, Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses, we pray. And Lord, I also ask that you would bless the health fair, bless the training now uh, down in room 246. And uh, bless, uh, it's just 20 minutes. I just pray that people would make the time and that we could um, just get a clear idea of what we're going to do strategically. And then on Saturday, God, just be with us. Help us as we step out in faith to see people saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.